This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The question is, why? Why do you think you did what you did? Yeah. Or do you, oh, do you even Christ. know? Do you know? I wish I knew. Yeah. I don't know, Fiona. Be honest. Boy, good question. <laughs> good question. Mm. I don't know, but you went through hell. I know you did. Yeah, right. yeah. It's just, I right. kind of kicked myself when I, I left. Deserve, I deserve Britain what I got. So just kicking off the the top of our uh, podcast there, that was a recording of uh, convicted rapist uh, Paddy O'Brien, Patrick O'Brien. He died this week, 84 years of age, and um, he was a notorious paedophile. Many people will be familiar with this case and with his face. We've talked about it a couple of times on this podcast, Um, but his death marks a a significant closure for um, his victim, uh, his daughter, Fiona Doyle. And what you heard there was just a snippet of the last ever conversation that she had with him. So she revealed that to us today, um, effectively speaking to her from his deathbed over the phone um, just a couple of months before he passed away. Uh, This is the first time anyone's hearing that conversation and seeing that conversation. And um, I felt it was worth opening the pot on this because it's... I suppose it's the last, you know, insight into his mindset, the mindset of, of a of a convicted rapist, you know, in the, in, in his dying days. And I thought it was rather remarkable that, um, he was apologetic and remorseful and, uh, and very much seems to be aware of the damage that he's done, which is a, it's a hell of a long way from when he was released, even in 2019. I mean, I recall, uh, doorstepping him when he was released from Dar- Arbor Hill prison and whilst he did make apologies uh, he he claimed and insisted that he didn't rape his daughter uh, even though he pled guilty to that and was very much still a man in denial but you hear in that phone call uh, I think real remorse um, and certainly his daughter feels that that, that was uh, him effectively fessing up that he'd ruined his life and he'd ruined uh, his daughter's life and the family's lives uh, by his actions and he and as he said I admit it do all do you think that he made his admission because he was close to death yeah almost certainly I mean he, he, according to Fiona I mean he knew that he was dying uh, there was nothing more that could be done for him he was in a nursing home there in County Kildare uh, and was very much in the last days of his life when he had that conversation with Fiona Um you know, I mean, her her biggest question to him, which she said was the question she was always afraid to ask him, was why. And she asks him that question um, in the phone call, why? And he says, that's a good question. I don't know why. Um, but he, he said, I admit it all. And I, I, he said, don't think I don't think about it. I do think about what I did. And uh, he says it's wrong. And he even went so far as to say, um, because people might recall that when... Uh, he was sentenced. There was an appeal on his sentence and he was actually given a further three years in prison. Um, and he, he says he deserved it. He, remarkable to hear him say this. I deserved it all. I deserved all those years in prison. Um, so he acknowledges very much that he deserved the punishment. 
Um, and he even, you know, he, he does, there is a little bit of that self-serving uh, in the phone call where you hear him give out about the final years of his life. When he got out of prison in 2019, he says his life was hell and that people would give him abuse and were calling him names. But he then says, but that I suppose that's nothing compared to what I did to you. So, I mean, yeah, I, I just thought that that was incredible to to hear, I suppose, genuine remorse. Now, that won't change people's uh, perspective on the man, and, and it doesn't change my perspective. I still think he's a monster, uh, and so does Fiona. I mean, that's not minimizing that. But I thought it'd be interesting to talk with you about remorse and like how that's still important to a, to a victim, to a survivor of abuse. Yeah, do you remember, was it a couple of pods ago, I told you about being in court for a man apologizing for indecently assaulting a, a man who was a child when yeah. he assaulted him. And now it was a very powerful moment to witness it because just the whole idea of remorse. I mean, Paul, you and I, we go to court all the time. We always hear about, you know, they've got remorse when they're in their pleading guilty and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But it's just the idea. I wonder, it's not what you and I think, what did Fiona take does she believe the remorse was genuine and did she take comfort from that? She did and she does. And you even hear her say in the phone call, um, you know, that that apology goes a long way. Um, you actually hear Paddy O'Brien say that his apology probably means nothing and the damage is done. Um, so he's even aware that his apology means very little. But, um, you know, Fiona was abused by other people as well. And she says to him, you know, you're my father in the end of the day. So that means something. You're still my dad. Um, I don't know if, you know, people might find that really, really hard to to understand. I think if you know a victim of abuse or someone that has suffered abuse and, and, and you know, I, I, I do have some familiarity with this uh, externally and I would say that those people, you know, it's it's it. They've lived with it their whole lives, and um, how they manage that in their head, it's very very hard. Maybe for someone who hasn't gone through this to comprehend, like Fiona probably would say to you that she hates her father in one way because of what he did to her and destroyed her childhood. But in the end of the day, it's still her dad, still the only dad that she's ever had, and in a way, she has a kind of a um, a love there that's that that goes beyond all of that even still and um, and I think that that's commonplace for a lot of victims of abuse when it's a family thing that like it's still the only father or mother or brother or whatever that you've ever known and so that that love is kind of eternal in a way even in spite of the terrible evil that they've done you, you, so, uh, yeah so it's almost as if you can't untangle that whole relationship and the love for your father, your as you say, your brother, or your uncle, or whatever. That's part of the like the rope of the the of all the emotions that you have. And it just reminds me, a couple of uh, uh, maybe month two months ago, a lady from Donegal was on. Uh, her father was jailed for abusing her, uh, and. Orlo O'Donnell in RT did a fantastic interview with her after the court case. She waved her anonymity. And the thing that struck me from that, she said she still loved her father, who was jailed for, for serious sexual abuse of her. So you're right there for the grace of God, but just, just all those emotions that people feel, and I suppose love for your daddy, 
who turns into a monster, it can't be turned off, I suppose, because he's he's your only father. Yeah, yeah, and and for Fiona, you know, now she just wants closure. She wants to go to the funeral, um, which which is tomorrow, and um, you know, he's going to be cremated. She she did always say she wanted to see him be better lowered into the ground, and oh, that hello. would be her. That that isn't going to happen. But in you know, even just being at his funeral and having that final moment. Uh, is important for her and she you know um she has indicated that that her and her family it's not just her but her family members have suffered through this and have all dealt with it in different ways and they're coming to a sort of a an end of a road here with this um so it's a huge journey and like sexual abuse has such an impact on families uh, and and it's hard to quantify but um I, I, I always think that this is a case worth mentioning because I think Fiona is an incredible advocate for victims and has spoken out for so many other victims and I think inspired, like I would even say in the last eight years of being in this paper, I have seen more and more and more victims waving their anonymity and coming out and speaking outside the steps of the, the CCJ and, you know, telling their stories. And I think Fiona was a huge influence on so many people. Uh, to go out to go out and do the same thing to come forward name their abuser um you know so she's to be applauded for that but, but you're 100 right that it is definitely there are definitely more survivors or victims waving their anonymity and i think one reason for that the survivors i've spoken to is you know the abuse is so secret it, it's it's hidden so they want people to know what the real person is like and being an abuser is a massive aspect of someone's personality, whereas they might have been, you know, a, a highly respected member of society, but they had this dark secret. And so they do feel, I don't think it's, you know, it, I think it's more vindication for that person that they, that, that people can see what the, the other aspects of this person was. But yeah, because I can remember when we started off, when I started off, it was incredibly rare for victims to come forward. So, you know, it's shining a light. Definitely, and people do come to us because they do want their tormentor named, as I say, because it's been so secretive the abuse itself. Yeah, uh, there's way more of it, and it's great to see. Um, so look, that was it, it's a hard story to speak about, but I think it's important to highlight. And you know, people might wonder why why are we playing that man's words? Why are we giving that any kind of airtime? I suppose it's to show you that the impact of it all these years later. I mean, he's gone to jail. He's done his time. But, you know, that was still an important moment for his daughter to have that kind of closure. So uh, it's important to highlight. Listen, shall we move on and speak about the guards, which, you know, it's becoming <laughs> something of a of a, a regular feature on our podcast because this is a controversy that's gone on and on in relation to the roster's crisis. Um, there's so much there's so much that's happened since the vote of no confidence. And, you know, you and I have been speaking to people and have uh, received a, a huge amount of information about policing in this country and the problems that are coming from uh, Drew Harris's tenure, allegedly. Um, I don't know what's worth speaking about first. Maybe we'll talk about the K, because you had that great story um, about a particular unit in what's known as the K. People are familiar with the K from the program inside the K, but maybe just explain the background to this. So it's the DMR West which K District is one of the districts in the DMR West, so it's Dublin Metropolitan Region West. Now, it's interesting because most guard divisions in Dublin would have 
a version of a task force. One can be a crime task force. One can be called, say, the burglary response unit in the DMR South, okay, which is Crumlin and Tala and all around there. But um, uh, it's just an, an interesting insight into how we get our stories and what the, the thought process is in our head. And I'll tell you why. Because the contact told me, listen, the K district is losing its its task force. Now, as I say, it's a district task force because there is a, another task force in the division, which is over in, I think, the Q and L and M, or Q and L, which is all sort of Clendalk and Luke and all around there. They have their own task force. So there were two. It's the only division with two task forces. So the district task force in Finglas and Blanche is gone. Now, Someone told me that and I was sitting there and it, my, my brain was foggy. And, okay, district, okay. And I remember sitting thinking, oh, hold on. Was that not the guards in the show Inside the K, right? And, and I went back to that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them would have been, there were different units in that TV show. So once I had that, I knew that was a much better story that I could sell to our news desk. So it's just a small bit of information. I thought it was a very good story in its own right because the week beforehand, I had done a story about the South Central Task Force being disbanded. And then we, so we did one about this. Uh, we did one about the DMR South, the BRU disbanding. So we were sort of going from division to division, talking about which ones are doing, doing disbanded. And they didn't make the front page, which is fine. But once I was able to do that connection between the TV show and the, the, the lads been having their unit disbanded, that put it on the front page. But it was just, it's so you're 90% there, but it was just that one small bit of information. Well, why has the unit been disbanded? So... Right, I, I, I was talking to a senior fellow there a while ago because as we were speaking, the talks are underway and I'm saying, Jesus Christ, I hope there's a solution because crime correspondents are very uncomfortable being industrial relations journalists. I want to go back to being a bang-bang crime journalist, right? You and I have been talking about industrial <laughs> relations for too long, but essentially they're creating a, a, a fifth unit. There are four units. They're creating a fifth one and they have finite resources. So to create the fifth unit all over the country, they're taking them from what they call Bakshi, so non-appointed, non-detective, plainclothes units, like the drugs, squat local drugs units, and the task forces, they're all mostly plainclothes lads who aren't appointed, who are technically still in uniform. So the easiest thing to do is to take them off, the specialist units, and create unity from them. But there's only, so they can't do the two jobs, so they're going back to uniform in unity. So that's the whole nub of it. But the task force does fantastic work. The burglary response unit does fantastic work. Compal, who are losing people, do fantastic work. Roads policing do fantastic work. But the commissioner wants more visibility. And that means lads coming out of plain clothes or buckshee and go back into uniform on the, what, we, you, what we, you and I would call the regular. So normal front frontline policing. So, you know, because you only have a finite resource. So they have to get the, the, the fifth unit from somewhere. And that means taking all these specialist units. So that's what's happening now. There's, there's talks underway today. As we speak, we might do a news flash, hopefully, in the middle of it. Uh, I, 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 are you reading the mute music about there being a deal? Yeah, they're saying, it sounds like they're coming towards something. I mean, I heard yesterday that there were talks about alternative rosters. I think there were two alternative rosters that were being presented uh, to the minister and then to the Garda commissioner. And... I think the discussions are around those alternative rosters now because look, the row, just to remind people if you haven't paid attention to it or haven't heard us banging on about it, uh, is over um, this controversial return of the what's known as the Westmanstown roster uh, and it's very deeply, deeply unpopular among rank and file Gardaí effectively. I'm summing up a lot here. But um, yeah, look, now they're talking about these alternative rosters that might 
be a compromise and make everybody happy. Uh, we see, we'll see. I mean, will you you think maybe the, and, and and maybe maybe this evening even we might hear news on that. Yeah, yeah. Look, the talks are underway. It's just I'm just look. I know nothing, but just remember, I Paul, I said this to you. Do you remember when I said there's going to be a date at five minutes to midnight? It's a wee bit sooner than I thought. I thought they would have got in the October, but I think the vote of confidence changed things. And you know, so look, we do know that the minister, the commissioner has the minister said the commissioner will be making proposals. So look. We know what the GRA offered. So it's the regular stays on the four and four, four days on, four days off. So what they call non-core, all the you know scenes of crime, task forces, they go on the six and four, which is the Westinstown Register. Now, the benefit of that is, I was explaining this to somebody, you and I are specialist reporters. We don't work normal hours. But when we did become reporters, we were ordinary reporters and we did our set shifts. So, you know, most people who are on the regular, you know, they start off as regular. So does it not make sense that, you know, if you do the regular, you do your four on four. And if you want to specialise, if you want to go up the ladder, if you want to get into something, then you have to do a bit longer hours and you have to do slightly different. You and I do not have, we can talk about this. You and I both were off on, was it Tuesday? What was it? And we both got three stories. We both, we got three stories between us. Wednesday. We We got stories between us that we just, you can't, you can't not do them. You have to do them. So it's the same with these guards and specialist units. They have to work different. And but the the first you start off as the regular. I think it's the solution. So yeah, it could well be the solution. I mean, you know, one of the things, one of the fallouts from this, uh, I received information that uh, under the return of the Westminster roster, it would, in theory, mean um, that that essentially nationwide for a four hour period every morning there would be no armed response of any description. Now, I thought, that, that's a headline, you know, that's a headline. But that that's when it boils down to it, with the return of those shifts, you would have had uh, the regional armed support units and the, the non-core detectives who would be armed. All of them would be working until about 4 a.m. and then they wouldn't come back on until 8 a.m. So between the hours of 4 and 8 a.m., uh, effectively there would be no armed cover so you know if there's a shooting or a major incident at 5 a.m you're not going to be able to have an armed guard or response in theory now to to give the other side of things you know i suppose the management perspective is they would say that they do have the armed cover for serious incidents and certainly in the dmr in the dublin region uh they have plenty of armed response emergency response unit uh, um for example um so I, I it was flagged to me that look in dublin that probably wouldn't be an issue but you know say for example in the border areas uh where there's cross-border crime all the time and and, and incidents that would require armed support at say 5 a.m in theory under this Westminster roster there would be no armed cover and that's a serious serious issue You've reminded me of something about armed response in Dublin. I think between the canals, there's not a problem. At the height of the feud, or there was something a couple of years ago, I, I remember doing a story about this. There was something on the boardwalk, and they th- I think they initially thought it was a terror attack. There was some, some fellow with a knife, right? Armed guards were there within one minute. Now, it was the local DDU, the district detective unit from Store Street, and then the a- ASU were there, I think, a minute later. But that's fast. So I'd always maybe be confident that, please God, if there's ever any major incident in the canal, within the canals in Dublin, you'll have armed lads there. Honestly, the response was when, within one minute. That's very impressive, to be fair to them. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But I see. I think it's outside of Dublin that the these problem these problems are arising now. You know, um, I'll give any. I, I understand that previously there there would have been. Um, provision under overtime so you know guards armed guards would have been given overtime to work those unsociable hours uh that might be the solution going forward or as you say you know uh if you want to work your way up the ladder you're going to be working different shifts so maybe they'll have people cover those hours but in theory under the return of the old regime there's no overtime there and you've got a four-hour period where uh, if there's a serious incident outside of Dublin, you're not going to have an armed response to it. And, you know, non-armed guards, of which there are many, feel quite uncomfortable about that fact that they might have to show up to a, to an armed incident where they themselves are not armed. Um, you know, it was pointed out to me that, uh, you know, the famous ATM robberies, you know, I mean, they were going on. They were going on whilst there was an armed response. So even those, you know, burglary gangs or whatever, they didn't care that uh, an armed res- guards might show up to to you know the theft the, the theft they're involved in. So imagine how emboldened they would feel if they knew uh, that there would be no armed response. You know. Well, yeah. Although on the other hand, I remember a lad telling me that there would be certain criminals at checkpoints who would happily drive three guard at checkpoints, right? But once the ASU came along. They stopped and they did stop and the guards were laughing at them going, ah, you're soft. It softened your cough now. So, you know, there is a reason why there's an armed support element. But I, I look, I, I personally, I think it's inevitable now that the minister got involved and the commissioner has decided or has said he will make proposals. I think there is an inevit- there's an inevitability that there will be a deal. But I mean, maybe I'm reading it wrong, but I think it's going to be sorted. It just it might be a pain in the neck for people for a while. But, you know. I think there's a roadmap to get things sorted. No, hopefully. We'll see. I mean, you know, the criticism of the GRA, which I don't know whether it's warranted or not, but I'm just giving the the other side, you know, there ha- and it, there were some even extreme arguments made about the personalization of this dispute that they were going after Drew Harris personally when really the issue was over rosters. And I think someone even suggested that this was a sectarian thing there's no suggestion that whatsoever, but I I think guards are taking huge offence to that uh, assertion that uh, oh this is this is a personal or sectarian or religious thing uh, when when it certainly isn't. I I want to address this because I, I read that article and I, look, we all write things. People are, are more than happy to be in, think we are fantastic journalists and we write only fantastic stories, but we write stuff that people get annoyed by, and that's grand. Um, I, I, I really disagree, disagreed with that article and I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you why I'm obviously from the north I'm a name like O'Toole I'm obviously a Catholic in fact I remember when I worked in the Irish News loyalists used to think my name was made up because it was just too Catholic they thought that I would <laughs> honestly they did so Mick O'Toole you know that's a classic Catholic name so I'm a northerner I'm Catholic I'd be Sound of the national question, I'll put it that way, I'm very green, okay? Um, so if if somebody, and I've spoken to hundreds of guards, and so have you, not once has anybody raised Drew Harris's 
religion to me. And you would sort of think if anybody had that bent, they would go, you know what, I can rant to Mick O'Toole about him being a Protestant because Mick's a North Belfast Catholic. And, you know, he would be, a, you know, he might, they might think he'll be, a, uh, I'll be a welcome recipient to this sectarian nonsense. Never once. Now, they said they have been very challenging about Drew Harris. I've always thought there was a bit of sort of grudging respect for him, but not once in the, and I mean thousands of conversations I've had, has anybody raised Drew Harris's religion. Look, the guards, once you become a guard, you become a guard. There are Protestant guards, there are Church of Ireland guards, there are, you know, there are Muslim guards, there are Buddhist guards. It doesn't matter once you put on the uniform, you're a mule, as they call themselves, and that's it. Do you know what I mean? Just, it's a, the guard of family, as it's called. Never once have I heard any, in my any time down here, have I heard any sectarian comments from any member of Angarda Shikana. I want to state that. I, I just, I thought that was completely wrong. Yeah, I agree with you. I, look, I think it, like there is a, a certain personal dislike among a lot of guards with Drew Harris, but it's not for that reason. I mean, there's a disconnect in general between management and the boots on the ground. They just feel that they don't understand the job that they're doing. Um, some do feel that the the direction of a guard Shiagana is leaning more towards the British model, but that's not an anti that's not an anti British thing. They just feel it, that they're no longer guards. <laughs> so that uh, and we and we spoke about discretion, how important discretion yeah, is within yeah. the guards, and a lot of people think that discretion is gone and it's been replaced by the sort of British constab. I've spoken about this, the British constabulary ethos, but at no stage has anybody. Have you ever heard anybody say anything about Mr. Harris's religion? No, never? never. Not once. No, no. It's it's and and you know it's nothing. It's nothing to do with that. No, and I, I, uh, as I said, I, I, there's definitely a personal dislike of him. I'm sure, but it's nothing to do with his religion or or um, you know the fact that he that he uh, resides from that part of the country. You know, so. And, you know, let it also be known, there are as plenty of guards from the north. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's it. Some, you know, they're all welcome. They're all guards. Just be, you put on the uniform and you become a guard. Of course. Well, look, we'll follow that with interest. Maybe by the end of this pod, they will have resolved things, you know. But uh, yeah, uh, We're checking our we're, phones. <laughs> we're, we're, we are getting an influx of stories from all of this, and it's welcome. And, and I just want to say, because there is a... a, a um, a viewpoint that maybe we're only taking one side on this look when people speak to us we're going to listen to them you know so i and i did give a give you an idea of the management position side of things there as well you know look from the management perspective they're saying the gra wouldn't come to the table in the wrc uh you know and they're questioning why didn't they why didn't they engage with the wrc you know so look we're not getting into we're, we're not interested in the industrial relations to that level we're not we're not yeah, <laughs> what, what, what are we doing <laughs> Can we talk about crime? Yeah. But look, we, we're, we're, we're here to cover the issues and we're not going to, if people talk to us, we're going to listen. Okay, so we're not taking any one particular side. Um, yeah, so you had a, uh, it's just, you know, speaking about uh, the great work that the guards do do, uh, you you had a, a great story, uh, a rather dramatic story. Um, you know, and I'm sure incidents like this happen all the time. We never hear about them. So it's great that you heard about this. This was an airplane uh, was turned around because uh, someone was attempting to flee. Was it then? Yeah, I, I, I don't know about that, Paul. I'm just trying to think. I've certainly never heard of it happen before. I've heard of Gardy arresting suspects at the airport as they were trying to flee, but as turning in, a plane as around. As they now. were checking in. Yeah. So essentially, what happened there? I, now, I can't 
talk about it's before the courts so Paul you'll know our wonderful solicitors who are wonderful they actually do keep us honest I had to take legal advice before I could write this story so there are certain things that I can't say but essentially there was a guard investigation into an alleged serious a serious assault on a person over the weekend and a suspect did emerge and Gardy were trying to track that person down and Gardy established that he was taking a flight from Dublin to Istanbul, Turkish TK 1976, Turkish Airlines. So I think they only got the information perhaps as the plane was taken off. So it wasn't, you know, they, they couldn't interdict him at the check-in terminal or at the check-in desk, whatever. It was it was a live situation. So it was Garda National Immigration Bureau detectives who have a presence at Dublin Airport. And because the the, per, the suspect is a foreigner, he's, he's, he's not Turkish, by the way. I think he would have been flying to Turkey and then on to somewhere else. But essentially what happened was it was in the air and they requested, they got in touch with the pilot and they requested him to turn back. Now, when I initially heard the story, I thought it would be, it had been a couple of miles that he'd taken off and it was a couple of miles away, but he was actually in over Liverpool, which I checked at Google Maps. It's 225 kilometres away. So he did, he, so that he, so I knew what the flight was, I knew where it was going, so I went on to Twitter and searched Turkish Airlines, Dublin Airport, something like that, and, the day before, and it happened the day before I got the story, and there was a map of a plane circling over Liverpool, Liverpool and heading back to Dublin, so it was that plane, so we got the live sort of tracker of it, so the plane landed, he was arrested by Gnib and the local detectives, local guards who were involved in the investigation he was held then charged and it subsequently appeared in court he didn't make a bail application which allowed us to write the story because we wouldn't i don't think we would have been able to if he had uh, and he's now in custody and we'd be up and again but to be fair it was a fantastic operation by the guards to really and you know, even when i wrote the story some people said well, could not i just let him go and get him out of the country a crime is a crime is a crime and it just shows you for me you know, have all the stuff about the rosters, but this story was about Gardy, and I'm going to use the cliche, go in the extra, it's a pun, go in the extra mile, go in the, go in the extra miles to get their man, and fair play to him, they did, they, you know, they probably could have said, ah, maybe we'll get, they got the plane to come around, and fair play to Turkish Airlines, because they, the guards couldn't say, come back, they had to ask, and the pilot did, and came back, so the man's now in custody, thought it was a great story. level stuff, like it's something out of a, out of a yeah. movie, yeah, that's very good. <laughs> And 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 somebody actually asked me, just speaking, what would be the what would happen if, say, a suspect was on a plane and he realised it was coming back? What would happen if he started acting up? Or what did the pilot say? You know what I mean. So I thought they'd just say, look, we have a technical problem. We we'll have to go back to Dublin or something. But as somebody said, I think they have protocols for everything. That's a fantastic story, um, and it's great that, that we can highlight um, the good work that they do in that in that respect. We wish we heard about incidents like that more often. As you say, that might be the first of its kind, but it's the first that we're aware of. Yeah, so, look, let's be honest, Paul. I, I think a lot of guard, maybe high up, maybe guard, guard and management sort of think that we only do stories that, that fuck them off. But, and I always say this, we'll take stories. If you like them, or if you don't like them, they're stories for us. If you get some kudos for this, or you don't get kudos, you get the opposite of kudos, it's not really our problem. If if, if you if you get a story and it makes, makes you guys happy and whatever, that's grand, but stories are stories are stories. 
and we've done look I can talk ad nauseam I broke that story about the Garda allegedly paying 300 quid to attack the, for a criminal to attack another Garda's house we didn't not do that story so why would we not do this story about Garda going out of the way to get somebody stories are stories and I think people outside don't really understand that yeah we're not we're not biased we'll take anything we'll take any stories so long as they're true so yes um speaking of uh, extraordinary I suppose stories involving guards this this is a, I think just a very sad turn of events which is the 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 incident at Leinster House uh, the protest if you will yesterday um I think we neither of us really um cover this but we, could, we did watch it with with interest I mean, we were off yesterday but um you know, I, I just want to say from the outset, like a, a journalist really should be objective to things and shouldn't necessarily uh, form their own opinion. That doesn't mean we're not human beings and that we don't have opinions. And I think, um, I think there's a certain, you know, politically there, there's a line that you tow. Yes, but when 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 you're flat out involved in thuggery and clearly committing criminal offences, uh, we're not going to take your side, right? So I, from from my perspective, what I saw there outside Leinster House was was nothing but tuggery maybe there were some people there who had good intentions to come and, and protest um but there was a serious amount of tuggery and outright just criminal offenses being committed yesterday and i i don't think anybody can stand over that and support that i i i watched the michael healy ray footage i think i put it up on our office whatsapp group um it was very disturbing watching that i mean and there were two guards with him and they were at risk because they were outnumbered. So fair play to those guards, because they, they stepped into the breach and they walked towards the danger to get Deputy Healy right of the way. But it, it was extremely troubling watching that. Um, and I, I, But I'm not surprised. He looked terrified as well. And who could blame him? I mean, if you watch that video, from the moment he comes out of Lancer House, I mean, he's chaperoned by these two guards, right? But that doesn't stop people lunging themselves at him. I mean, one guy proper goes for him. And the guards managed to successfully kind of get him out of there. But throughout his walk there, he's getting accosted, people running up, screaming in his face. Like, and they're they're almost feral. Like, I mean, they're beyond angry. They're they're there's something just their mindset seems to be completely off the charts in terms of their level of anger. I'm not even sure what they're angry at. Like Michael Healy Ray as well, an independent politician. Um, I, I don't understand why they're angry at him even. Like what's he got to do with their, their argument about, which I think it's about immigration. Uh, th- that's their ultimate fear. They have a problem with people coming into this country and they think that every, they, they think that every politician in Dáil Éireann is against them and that they're, they're deliberately bringing an influx of people from foreign countries in here illegally or whatever. I, I, I actually cannot understand what their point is. I, I just I think they're, they're angry at everything. I, I personally myself, I think it was lockdown. Lockdown provide, just sort of flicked a switch for an awful lot of people. Now, they had been there before that. I, I sort of think it's two things. I think austerity and all the stuff about water charges and everything was the sort of incubator of it. But and there, there were there were various protests and all that sort of stuff for years after austerity. But lockdown, it just coalesced an awful lot of people and made an awful lot of people angry. And they're just going from even, you know, I think that the whole Ireland is full thing. They only really latched on to that after they were anti-lockdown. 
So it's what's the next thing we can go on? You know what I mean? So there'll be there'll be other stuff. There there definitely be other things because they are permanently angry and it's as if it's an industry for them to keep protesting. Like somebody said, what banners? You know when there's a protest, there's banners espousing their views. Were they ready? So it's just anger. Yeah, it's it's just Ireland says no kind of stuff, and it, 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 the the predominant issue seems to be about immigration, but. I say that lightly, like I don't even think they know what they're actually giving out about. The the, the one, the, probably the one other really disturbing thing about this was the gallows that they created, this, um, you know, mock-up figure of a politician being hung, and then the photographs of all of the uh, various politicians around it. And I watched a video of someone holding up, you know, each piece of paper, and they're laughing and mocking each politician, Um you know, in uh, the, the, in particular, some very um, just disgusting things were said about uh, the, the the minister for children, Radhika Gorman, um, and a lot of you know veiled homophobic things are said too. Um, I just don't know. These people are living in this bubble where they just seem to think that these politicians are are almost demons or something like it's 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 a it's a it's a very strange mindset and i blame social media for it mm. do you know what i do you know what i think paul remember I've, we've said this before people believe journalists are fair game so they can do it it's as if the laws don't apply to us as in people can't give you a kick right and it's no problem because it's allowed i think they now view the sort that have the same t- mindset about politicians that you can do whatever you want to them it doesn't really matter they're supposed to take it and they're not really Mr Healy Ray was Deputy Healy Ray was put under a terrifying I think really 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 terrifying ordeal and that could have ex- gone out of, exploded really really could have gone very very south I have to say so but it's just it's just anger now one thing that's not a positive but one consequence that might open people's eyes the abuse that was heaped on Gardaí at that was yet was disgusting, but it's not new. You talk to any guard, they get that practically every single day, and they have to put up with it. And I think an awful lot of people are going, "Oh my God, look what that poor guard has to take." They get that shit every single day, every night outside pubs all across Ireland. They get massive grief, and it's credit to the guards that they restrain themselves. And I wonder the events of yesterday. I know there were third. We spoke about this. There were thirteen people arrested. But I wonder, you know, remember during lockdown, the guards had the four E's, was it escalation and, and encouragement and all that sort of stuff. The guard mindset is to try to dampen things down and, you know, let people give off steam and stuff. But that, so I just wonder, will there be, as a result of this, will there be a more robust response from the guardie? Now, I'm not criticising their initial response because... I think it's a good thing to let things calm down and let them burn off steam and all that sort of stuff. But people are horrified by this, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of the public order unit. I know there were yesterday, but it was the soft caps who were there first. So I just wonder, will there be a more of a reaction? There probably has to be more of a reaction from the guards because they're probably under pressure about this. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking there was something very January 6th about it. In a, on a on a small scale, but nonetheless, it's like these protesters were kind of trying to copy the whole January sixth mindset. I do think there's possibly a fear at government level that this needs to be nipped in the bud now, or you potentially could have uh, individuals trying to storm the doll or whatever. You know, I mean, some yeah, but but Paul, 
they, they, they protested outside TD's house. They protested outside the Taoiseach's house. Now, I'm going to say something. I'm not talking about any of those people who were identified yesterday, but the Taoiseach has had extra security for about two years because of a threat assessment. So you know, the guards are aware of this. It's not as if this is coming as a shock. The Special Detective Unit have been monitoring various people in all pro- forms of protest. Guards are aware of this. The so right it's about the response. It's definitely well, yeah. becoming an increasing threat. Absolutely. So maybe it has made other people awaken to the dangers from this crowd because the guards have been aware. It's their handling of it. I think for the right reasons. But I think that may have to change. It may have to. And I think also that, you know, the, these would be the very people who would be fervently against the proposed uh, so-called hate speech laws that Helen McEntee is trying to bring in. I think they've actually shot themselves in the foot there yesterday. I mean, this, if anything, is going to kind of, you know, embolden the argument that there needs to be uh, hate speech laws. Um, I, I Again, I think people, if we live in a democracy, people should be able to protest. But what happened yesterday wasn't protest. I mean, it was just pure out criminality. It, look, it, yeah, and I, would, I wasn't laughing, but I was looking on Twitter today. There was a thread about it and the number of people who said that the extreme elements was staged and they were all agent provocateur and they were undercover guards. Oh, of course. <laughs> dozens of people. And this is what sort of frightens me. I think a lot of people have been radicalised. Now, there's different levels of radicalisation. So, for example... You know, I'm, there's a cohort of people who think COVID is a hoax, you know, you know, who've just gone down a rabbit hole and there are various levels of it and you see the extreme of it here. But people are going down rabbit holes. Well, the, this is where I blame social media and how algorithms work. I mean, it, it, it's it's and it's like a junkie type thing. You know, it, it, your algorithm will keep giving you what it thinks you want. You know, so if you watch one anti-vax video, you're going to get a hundred. Or, you know, uh, something to do with the government being corrupt. Again, same thing. And these people are just seeing content that they agree with um, over and over and over. And some people are becoming radicalized by that. Some people are able to kind of look at it rationally and say, I disagree with that or I agree with that. But it is sucking in a lot of people. I mean, you know, like, I mean, if you're just to give an example on TikTok, if you're into cats, you're going to get nothing but cat videos, right? Okay. It's, it really will just feed into whatever your habits are. But th- there is a huge amount of extreme conspiracy, far-right stuff that's going unchecked on social media. And in particular under Elon Musk's uh, tenure uh, at Twitter uh, or X or whatever you want to call it. I'm, I don't know about you. I'm seeing more and more extreme conspiracy stuff on my feed, on X in particular. Um, and an awful lot of the people, I mean, you and I have blue ticks now for work, but a lot of the people who have blue ticks in particular are spreading some of the most uh, insane stuff on X. And because they have that uh, that boost from the blue tick, those are the posts you're seeing the most. So again, that's where social media comes. The, the people who run social media, I think, come into the blame because you are seeing more and more of this nonsensical shite uh, being pushed on social media platforms like X. And then you have people that are just falling into the trap of believing all of that. That's where they're becoming radicalized on social media. How many times, Paul, have you and I tried to check or checked the allegation about the latest rape of, of a, an Irish girl by a foreigner? Oh, and they say, they say it with such conviction. Yeah. And I go, oh, no, that's not true. I, I know that one. That didn't happen. I know for a fact because I checked it and there's nothing. There's, there's not. I, I must have done it a dozen times. But they, 
they, but they don't even say, lads, I listen, there's a rumour of this. It's, right, lads, this has happened. It's crazy, and it's going unchecked. Yeah, well, I, I'll just allude to it. Uh, this could be legally difficult, so th- there was a recent incident uh, where people were saying that I wasn't reporting it accurately because there was a a allegedly a foreign national involved. And, you know, I was leaving out the key point that this person is a, a foreign uh, person and you know you, you, so I'm deliberately I am deliberate I'm involved in some conspiracy where I'm withholding information that this person is foreign which is you know if that that's apparently relevant to the story this person actually is a resident in this country for I think at least a decade so you know the fact the the facts are not borne out in 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 it being a foreign problem you know what I no, mean no but facts yes but the fact no and as, as I always say facts are fairly the man is a foreign national and we shouldn't be afraid to say that but that, yeah, but it's not like there's some, again, people are trying to turn this into it's an asylum seeker issue and this person's come in illegally and they're a problem. It's much more complex than that. Of course. Oh, absolutely. But facts are friendly. So, you know, we shouldn't go the other way of going, well, I'm not going to say this because it's a fact and people might interpret it. We, we'll just do the facts, right? Because how many times have we said, look, it is a foreign national is the victim here or the foreign national is the suspect? And it'd be like... Why, what, what relevance is that? Is it, hold on, sunshine. The facts are in the story. If you don't like that fact, that's not that's absolutely not a problem. It's a fact, and that's fine. It's you know, look, there are various things we can't talk about for legal reasons. But I will say, I did research in this. Approximately something like nine percent of uh, accused for ser- a certain serious crime are foreign national, but fifteen percent of the victims are foreign nationals. And people don't want to hear that. No, they don't, because people only want to hear facts that they agree with. Exactly. Exactly. So, so it's big. It's big. And look, again, I'm getting annoyed now because I think social media is massively to blame. You know, I don't think you would have seen. I mean, you're talking about, um, you know, people having views pre-COVID, but there's definitely something in the last couple of years brought on by the kind of uh, the the anti-vax kind of uh, COVID pandemic, definitely has increased the level of people who have gone down this rabbit hole of believing the government is against them uh, and that society is against them and that, and, and that there's some grand conspiracy. Um, look, it, I, I, think that, I think social media has a lot to blame. That's all. I, I feel it, and I also think a lot of the people involved would be sort of, it gives them validation to be part of a crowd and to be, your your views are fantastic and, you know what I mean? So I, I don't see a solution. I do think that there will be a, a, a response from the guards. So let's see what happens in the coming. And as as I was going to say, actually, the guards did say that a senior investigating officer in Pier Street has been appointed. Now, that's a, probably a detective inspector. Could be D super. I'd say a detective inspector. So that shows you it's a significant investigation. So 13 people have been arrested. I, I think we can expect more people to be arrested in the coming weeks because there will be a significant if, if someone of it as, as SIO is involved it shows you that it's a big operation so I think there'll be more consequences to come we'll watch that with interest listen thanks very much for, for listening to us we've we've covered a lot of topics today so we'll think we'll leave it there and um, we'll be back to you hopefully next week thanks very much 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 thanks very much